Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Maria Resta, Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2018. Maria, why do you think Time made you their Person of the Year last year? So I was one of four journalists that they put on, on their cover, right? And they called us the Guardians of Truth. And what struck me when I saw the four of us was that um, Jamal Khashoggi was brutally murdered and it had shocked the entire world, right? And the two journalists from Myanmar were at that point still in prison in Myanmar. And then you had the Capital Gazette where journalists there were murdered. That's when I realized, oh my God, I'm the only one who's free and alive here. And is this how tough it is to be a journalist today? Um, I asked, I, I didn't know. And I found out on Twitter when when I got it. And the initial thing I looked at was, oh my God, I think it's fake news. And I gave, I sent it to our social media team. And then right after that, I got a call from CNN. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, it's real. Um, time, I asked them why. And they said that for a little while, there was a debate internally because do you focus attention on yourself as journalists? Um, but then they felt that the problem was huge and that it was something that needed to be put forward. You know, obviously, I've been living through these very personal, vitriolic uh, attacks, both online and in the real world. And I have never lived through anything like this. And I've been a journalist for a long time. You began your career, or certainly you're well known in, earlier in your career as being the CNN correspondent in the Philippines. Um, but tell me the story of, of how you have become this uh, global, I wouldn't say it's a, a kind of a global celebrity for the defense of journalistic freedom. I think it was a combination that I've been around a long time. And I'm also involved in this new world, right? So I opened the Manila Bureau in 87. I then opened the Jakarta Bureau in 1995. And in this time period, I did a lot of reporting. And by the time I left CNN, I was doing all of the investigative reporting, looking at networks, terror networks in Southeast Asia. Um, and then I moved to, to head the largest TV news group here. I learned how to manage the PNL. Uh, oh gosh, your question is why? 
I was part of the old world and part of the new world. Uh, Rappler, when we set it up, was a combination, was the nexus of investigative journalism, um, technology, and community. And at that point, we had been growing before these attacks in 2016. We had been growing 100% year on year for the from 2012 upwards. So uh, I'm still not answering your question of why. The, I think the main reason is that I continue to speak against these attempts to harass and intimidate us. But the turning point was the election of Duarte. Well, so 20, I think everything in the world changed in 2015, which was when Facebook introduced Instant Articles. Instant Articles brought news groups onto the platform, but there was no change in the algorithm. So you were using algorithms about jokes and you know what, you're, what you had for dinner to determine what facts were. And that's when the gaming happened. So at the end of 2015, Rappler and three other news groups in the Philippines went onto Instant Articles. And that's when I realized by February 2016, which was when the campaign was ongoing, I took us off Instant Articles and began to study how social media was being used. Um, in Duterte was elected in May 2016. A month later, you had Brexit. In November, you had Donald Trump. And then a short while later, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. So you were amongst the first professional journalists to expose the way in which this, the, 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 the rise of these neo-authoritarians were, were gaming social media? We lived it, and we had the data. Uh, in July of 2016, one month after Duterte was, in, was elected, we saw the weaponization of social media when the the campaign accounts were used to pound perceived critics to silence. Uh, the first ones that they attacked were anyone on, on social media, on Facebook, who questioned the drug war, because the drug war began in July of 2016. The second targets were institutions who would, the truth tellers, journalists, news groups. Uh, third were opposition politicians, right? But what was interesting to me was, we watched this pivot. It was like it it was a complete turnaround from social media for social good to attacks that I didn't think were part of the Filipino psyche. And this is when we we began we were working with a research group in 2017 that coined the term patriotic trolling, online state-sponsored hate that is meant to silence uh, perceived critics. Um, in our case, we began, something called no a campaign called hashtag no place for hate in August. We were very naive because I thought at that point that, you know, well, people are just being angry. You know, I didn't realize how systematic the whole thing was. And when we began collecting the data by the end of August, I went to Facebook and I said, this is really alarming. And you've got to look at this. And when we showed them that 26 fake accounts could actually influence 3 million others and what messaging was being used, um, I was hoping they would take action. Um, I told them if they didn't do anything that Trump could win. We all laughed because in August of 2016, it didn't look like Trump could win. And then by November, they asked me for the data again. 
And was this pioneered, do you think, initially in, in Russia or in China? It follows Russian disinformation. So part of the reason we were targeted was by the end of September. So I'd given the data to Facebook. Uh, I was hoping they would either do something or give me data back. I never heard from them. Um, I waited a month, a month and a half. And then by the end of September, I, I told them that we would go ahead with the story. And the first week Was of, that a threat to them in a sense? I don't know if it was a threat as much as the people I spoke with were policy and, and sales. They weren't in charge of the data. And for one of the things I've learned is that they don't have data people in our part of the world. But when we came out with the series, and this was the first globally that looked at the propaganda war, it's the weaponization of the internet, and Facebook was what was used, right? Um, in the Philippines, you have the... Filipinos have spent the most time on social media globally four years running now. And in in here, Facebook really is our internet. So when nothing happened, we came out with the story. It was like the, you could hear the crickets. Uh, and that was October of 2016. Almost immediately, I wrote two of the three parts. The attacks began, and the attacks were exponential. It, at the beginning, I I tried to respond to some of them, then I realized they weren't really interested in an answer. Uh, so at some point, the attacks happened so frequently, and this is through the night. I just started counting the attacks, and I came down to an average of 90 hate messages per hour. That's a new weapon against journalists. And this hate was orchestrated by the regime. We were able to show that it connected directly with two people who were pro-Duterte bloggers, but they were given government offices. Do you think that the fact that you're a woman and that these neo-authoritarians to a man are men, is that significant? I think what's happened is that the populism that they rode on almost pushed these kinds of gender, what we thought was progress on the gender front, we went right back to the Stone Age. In the Philippines, uh, this, the attacks of the president are um, sexist at best, misogynistic at worst. And it brought out the worst in our men, in our society. We've taken so many steps back. Uh, and the attacks are vicious online. Uh, we now have a database called, we call it the Shark Tank. It's about a terabyte large. And in that database, women are attacked 10 times more than men. These regimes tend to be, to be polite, prehistoric in ideological terms. They're not very sophisticated. They tend to be nostalgic and reactionary, but they're highly sophisticated when it comes to tech. Why and how? I think this is a form of digital colonialism, right? So what enabled these types of mass manipulation were the social media, the giant, American giants, the social media platforms that came in. It's the way they were designed, the kind of micro-targeting of advertising uh, offers up an insidious way of manipulating that takes away free will in many instances, right? The way it's used. Uh, the second wave uh, are digital companies like Cambridge Analytica. 
And it makes sense, right? If the giant tech platforms give you a, a, a way to enable mass manipulation, who does the manipulation? Who's interested, right? And that now brings power and money. So what's Cambridge Analytica? Cambridge Analytica is run by Steve Bannon. It is funded by Rebecca and Robert, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, right? And this group, the whistleblower of Cambridge Analytica, Christopher Wiley, just told me in September this 2019 that uh, the parent company, SCL, and Cambridge Analytica were not only in the Philippines, but that they used the Philippines, and his word was his words were as a petri dish, because law and order is weak. They can try things with relative impunity, and when when a manipulation tactic works, they would, and this is a direct quote, port it over to the West the target, the United States. When you look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the most number of compromised accounts, and you're talking like roughly 76 million. I mean, the most number of compromised accounts were in the United States. But the country that had the second number of Facebook compromised accounts was the Philippines. Maria, you started up in traditional media and television, um, and then you, you became a, a startup entrepreneur yourself, uh, founding Rappler. Do you feel as if in all this experience that they've they have sort of taken away the internet from you that the original ideals of the digital revolution have been profoundly corrupted it's a perversion of what it was supposed to be. You know, I believed in the Silicon Valley. You know this. We debated this, right? I I loved reading your book. I loved reading Cult of the Amateur, but I believe that the network effect could help the Philippines jumpstart development. It's baked into Rappler that we build communities of action and the food we feed communities is journalism. And I had hoped that we could help build institutions bottom up. And it gave a mission to journalism that I didn't feel as much when I was working for an American network. Um, did it cheat me? I think that if the social media giants had thought this out just a little bit more, that they would, the kind of manipulation that is put, that, that came from Russian disinformation, it's this idea that, you know, the idea is not to make a candidate win or lose, it's actually to make the population lose trust in anything. And when they don't trust anything, when there's no credibility of institutions, then the voice with the loudest megaphone wins. And so in a situation like that, you've robbed the people. If you have no... So the way we've seen it work in the Philippines now is a lie is pounded a million times. When you say a lie a million times, it becomes a fact. Except it's a lie. So without facts, you don't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. That means you don't have democracy. But this isn't the 20th century version of totalitarianism. It, it's not all well, is it? Oh, my gosh. I, I'm i not sure what you mean by that, but it is... I mean, it's not 1984. It's a, 1984, there was a single truth or a single, uh, a single This is chaos. Voice. Yeah, this is chaos. Um, it is informational chaos. They, they flood the market with, with data, with lies. Right. And so that you, 
democracy is based on us being able to make a choice, right? You can't make a choice if you don't know what's real and what's an illusion, what's fact and what's fiction. And that's the kind of weaponization of social media that's happened. Uh, it is flooding. So propaganda has been there forever, but propaganda said a million times now replaces facts. So we do have alternative realities. And this goes back to the way the internet is also set up, right? We have different feeds. What if there's no more public sphere? How can we, why is my reality more important than your reality? Before, before the tech platforms became the world's largest distributor of news, news groups, journalists organizations were in charge of both distribution and gatekeeping facts, making sure that the public sphere uh, is not polluted. That's all gone now. And that's part of the reason that democracy, I think democracy as we know it is gone. We need to do something substantive. And uh, it goes back to the social media giants, to these tech platforms. How, what can they do to make sure that this it's a virus this that these virus of lies actually stops so so what you've called the virus of lies how, how can it be confronted what is the, what are the most effective ways to turn this thing around uh, in the short term the the tech platforms are the only ones who can take action we can wait for government regulation um but that will take time. And part of the reason we work with all the tech platforms, with all the tech companies, is precisely because in our case, it's here and now. If there's if nothing significant is done, this has a direct impact, not just on Rappler, but on, on my future. Everything I've built in my career is on the line now, right? In the end, what what this lack of gatekeeping has done is it's made the fabric of our society very weak because it sells to the highest bidder uh, the choice. It's subverted choice the way this works. Do you, do you agree with me on this? Uh, well, you're the authority. You're, <laughs> you're, you're living on the front line of this. Um, but the, 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 but that the way the advertising, the micro-targeting is done subverts choice so it's the business model of the facebook's and the google's yes. of the world i but would say facebook more it's the social media platforms because it 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 pushes you to extremes right it it empties the center it, because to keep you on the platform they need to keep feeding you more and more extreme views of the view you already are leaning towards so it's compounding echo chambers in every sense it's and tearing us further apart. So if you lean right, you get pushed further right. If you lean left, you get pushed further left. What happens here to the middle? And meanwhile, Facebook makes billions of dollars. Billions. Out of all of us. And, and that's part of what needs to change, right? So David Kay, the, the UN Special Rapporteur of uh, Free Expression, um, he suggested that something like content moderation, which is what we would call gatekeeping, that that be based on the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Because what's happened is these exponential attacks literally change people's minds, right? It's, it's very global. It's, it's like Nazi Germany, right? In my case, the government has decided they're going to try to replace the, the description that people associate with me as journalists, right? They're going to replace journalists with criminal. And they say it often enough 
in social media. And then it comes out of President Duterte's mouth, government officials. When you do that, you, you've changed reality. And, it's, and people like me, the people on the front lines, have no recourse. So are you saying then that social media companies need to become curators, need to become more like traditional media companies? Social media companies have to be held accountable for the damage that is done on the platforms, the same way that news groups are held liable for the lies. And how is that going to work, though? Sh should we begin perhaps by, at least in the United States, by taking away safe harbor from them? I think that the the way the law has allowed the social media platforms to behave has led to the deterioration of democracy everywhere. So the first the first thing is, why not demand like a driver's license, right? This kind of exponential growth that you has happened. You mean driver's license in terms of doing away with anonymity, that you yes. have to show who you are to be able to post. So Facebook actually says that it does not condone fake accounts, right? And yet there are millions of fake accounts and they take them down all the time. Just uh, today they announced that they were taking down third party groups who had access to the data that they had. Um, these fake accounts in the disclosure a few years ago in the Philippines, they they actually said that they had the and higher than average number of fake accounts in the Philippines. Millions, right? So the first is that, because make them stick to the rules that they actually say. Then the second is the assumptions that that uh, engineers have made about content moderation. I mean, the napalm girl, an iconic photo by Nick Ut of the, the girl running away from uh, Vietnam, this was taken down by a content moderator in Manila who took it down based on a on a checklist that said naked, out, no context, no nothing. That's So there were all these problems with it, obviously, right? But Facebook, to do these things, have to, um, have to be undermining their own revenue, essentially. Are they willing to do that? I or does it require government intervention? <laughs> well, I think it's both. I think that I appeal, I think it's enlightened self-interest because they don't want to create a world where they cannot exist. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, to work against their own revenue model. That's a massive change and it's a lot of money that, that could be lost, right? So government regulation could kick in, but I just worry that you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, both on free speech and in terms of the potential for this technology to do good. I, we still work with Facebook. We're one of two Filipino fact-checking partners of Facebook because I saw its ability to build these communities of action. We grew 100 to 300% year on year, our first few years until 2015. Uh, I think it can still be done, but not when... The platforms allow hate, the, this inciting to hate, the, this kind of manipulation that, that subverts choice. Is the, is, is the European model uh, the, the one that you think has the best chance of taking on the tech giants, a more regulatory approach, or do you think that that is also somehow flawed? 
it's flawed because it isn't a one size fits all answer. And this is going to be a problem for the the giant the tech giants, right? Look, at one level, you have for the first time one platform where if you put Facebook and WhatsApp together, you have you're connecting 2.7 billion around the world. That's incredible. We've never we've never had that many people in one platform because every country used to have its own vertical media and nothing cut across except you know you that's why I joined CNN, BBC, these kinds of of but that is one way, right? So there's this huge potential at the same time if you don't stop the lies a lie in the United States travels to the Philippines like that and vice versa. And that's what's tainting this entire ecosystem. So uh, I don't know if the European, if GDPR is the right model. It seems simplistic to me, but I've testified in, in Ottawa at, uh, it is a 14 nation, the members of parliaments of 14 nations have come together. It's led by Canada. The vice chair is Damien Collins from, from the, from Britain. And they've asked sophisticated questions and they're looking for answers. In the end, I think the solution to this is transparency, right? We talked, you talked about this in your speech, but, um, so far the platforms have already taken down millions of accounts globally. But Twitter releases all of the data. Facebook doesn't really. And certainly Google doesn't, right? So what can we do? What if there's like a global repository? It is explained to you so you can see it. That's very easy. And then you can actually begin to tear down these networks of, the, I call them terrorist networks because they're spreading lies and they're they're acting like terrorists in, in each of our democracies. Why can't there be a global Interpol who will prevent the impunity of these information operations, right? When they're caught, there are penalties to it. That's what will stop it. And this then is a, is a kind of an algorithmic transparency? It's more than algorithm. It's more than an algorithmic transparency. It's also, so this is how, this is the foundation of our methodology. We fact check a lie. When we find the lie, um, because fact checking is a whack-a-mole game, right? If you're stopping at that level. But when you find the lie, then you can begin to look at the networks that spread that lie. And sooner or later, like terrorist organizations in the real world, you begin to tear them down. And if you do that in a transparent manner and people see that there are costs to doing this, then this will stop, right? So the Mueller report is very clear about what Russian disinformation did in the 2016 elections. And that this is like, um, okay, this is a strange, this was actually a former KGB agent who, chairman who came up with this. He said, uh, in with disinformation, the first time you, you encounter it, you can move forward like a normal person like go back to yourself. But if you, you're fed a diet of this, he compared it to drugs. So the first time you take a drug, you try it, you're okay. But if you get addicted to this drug, it wears down your body, it wears down your mind. And if, you're ta if you've taken the drug a million times, you're a fundamentally different person. That's what's happening with the lies, with this kind of networks of disinformation. It is weakening the body politic. It is weakening and killing democracy.
What happens though if the lies originate from politicians? Well, that's what we're seeing in many parts of the world, right? Freedom House in starting November 26, sorry, Freedom House starting in November 2017 actually said that in at least 28 countries around the world, cheap armies on social media are rolling back democracy. And then um, Oxford University, the Computational Propaganda Research Project in 2018 said that number was up at 48. I don't know what it is in 2019, but I certainly know in my country, this is state-sponsored. And while the government continues to deny that, when the two of the three main content creators in the first wave were given government posts, you know they're connected. And we've watched this. This It's replicated in many other countries around the world. It's one thing to, to pay for uh, farm, troll farms and, and pay people to lie. But do you think these politicians, these senior politicians, um, do they know they're lying or do they believe in what they're saying? I go back to Cambridge Analytica and you can see in everything that's been exposed there, right? Both the operators who are paid, the people working in Cambridge Analytica, and the people who hire them, right? In the Philippines, we went and found SEL, the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, and they had a relationship to Duterte, right? Power and money are coming together again. And it is a potent combination that if it is not addressed, will kill. Democracy as we know it will, will <laughs> if nothing substantive, if no substantive action is taken, democracy as we know it is dead. Maria, the Philippines is a couple of hour flight from, from Manila to, to the mainland of China. Um, the Chinese model of capitalist authoritarianism or capitalist totalitarianism um, also looms quite literally on the horizon for you. Um, do you fear that model? It, it's here. I mean, we can see it in the the governments. Our, the Philippine government has been very vocal starting a few months after President Duterte took office. He went to Beijing and he announced that the Philippines would pivot away from the United States and move towards China and Russia. He named both countries in Beijing. Um, what we've seen now is Chinese investments coming in. Not enough yet in terms of the government, President Duterte's build, build, build program. But on Facebook, for example, we're seeing a connection between the first wave, the content creators that are pro-Duterte, uh, now bringing in Chinese Facebook pages. It's a very interesting it's a very interesting way, but we're seeing the pivot into disinformation. We also, uh, last year, uh, the uh, alternative left-leaning, sorry, let me put it this way. Last year, Alter Media, Bulatlat, other independent news groups um, filed a suit. Well, they were taken down by DDoS attacks, and they filed a suit this year against a company that has connections to China and Macau online gambling. It's a very interesting case study, but we're certainly seeing this kind of geopolitical power play. So the stakes then uh, in the West are extremely high to get democracy right. They're, they're high in a, in a, in a, in a existential sense, in a, a historical sense as well. 
Is that what you're saying, that we have to fix our democracies now because the alternative is either Putin-style informational uh, terrorism or the Chinese model, which in some ways is even more terrifying. And China is shifting more towards um, uh, this Russian disinformation that is more Putin-esque. I think that it's not only an existential moment, right? Uh, Three years ago, and this is this long, three years ago, I, I said the Philippines is the canary in the coal mine, that this is extremely alarming. Three years later, we are America's dystopian future. If you don't do anything, this is where you will wind up because it tears the fabric of democracy apart. 